We are to take the materials of this world, like stone or pigment or wood or sound, and enable them to praise God, to bring about new forms of order that glorify God. And that's a very earthly, very, um, very, yeah, indeed, down-to-earth picture of the creative person. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Jeremy Begbie is the Thomas A. Langford Distinguished Research Professor of Theology at Duke Divinity School. He teaches systematic theology and specializes in the interface between theology and the arts. He's senior member at Wolfson College, Cambridge, and an affiliated lecturer in the Faculty of Music at the University of Cambridge. Along with David O. Taylor and Daniel Train, Professor Begbie co-edited the recently released collection of essays, The Art of New Creation in which artists, theologians, and scholars explore the ways in which the biblical promise of new creation informs the work of artists of all kinds. Makoto Fujimura has said of the book, artists may be expected to speak of the new to attempt to create something new into the world, but what is truly new and necessary is for theology to dare to open the mystery of the new. In this collection of essays and conversations, we see a glimpse into a church in which such a possibility of the new is fully manifest. Professor Jeremy Begbie, I am so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Delighted to be here, Jonathan. Thank you for inviting me. So you, uh, along with uh, Daniel Train and David Taylor, uh, edited the recently released book, The Art of New Creation. That's uh, right. And, and I'll do what I can to, to, to summarize what's going on here, but, to, but you could do much better. In essence, you're you're interested in the idea of, of what does the idea of new creation have to do with arts and the, the, and with creative work. Actually, let me just let you tell me, tell me what this book is about. Yes, indeed. Um, In 2019 at Duke university, we held a big symposium with about a thousand people, I suppose, all together on theology and the arts to look back over the last 10 years the institute i run duke initiatives in theology and the arts had been going 10 years so it was a good opportunity to look back and also look ahead with others who were working in the field and we had lectures and talks and dialogues and worship workshops and displays and a big concert at the end and then we asked some of the main contributors to contribute an essay uh, to to a book, to a collection, and that's what we have here. It includes all sorts of things, but not, not just academic essays, but also testimonies from artists. Mm-hmm. It finishes with the sermon that N.T. Wright preached at the end of the conference. And indeed, it has just appeared, and we hope it'll do a lot to encourage those working at the interface of Christian faith and the arts. Well, it was certainly encouraging to me. I, I, uh, I loved... I especially loved your introductory essay. We'll get to that in a minute. I loved uh, you write sermon at the end and and so so many good, uh, not just, as you said, not just essays, but also interviews with, uh, with, uh, go ahead. Well, is it interviews or in any case, um, discussions with, uh, with artists uh, from all disciplines. Uh, So I, I loved seeing that. You, you talk about, I think a good place to start talking about your, uh, all of these issues is a distinction you make in your introduction 
you say that the new creation is both anthrop anthropological and cosmological. Hmm. Uh, specifically, uh, one, one way you specifically apply that idea is when Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. And I certainly think of that, I've always thought of that in terms of um, the person is a new person. The person yep. is, a, I guess that's anthropological side of things. But as you say, that anthropological new creation is also in the context of a cosmological yes, indeed. new creation. So. So, so tell me about that. Well, I think in that great text, if anyone's in Christ, new creation, um, in from the two Corinthians, what undoubtedly he has as his main focus, Paul has uh, human beings in mind. Yes, indeed. And he's speaking about human beings being made new because of what's happened in Christ. But the background to that is undoubtedly, I'm following Richard Hayes here, my colleague at Duke. The background to that is the recreation of all things. And that comes out especially in Romans 8. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will attain the freedom of the glory, uh, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And there you have, an undoubtedly, a cosmological text, which is, which is echoing, resonating with, perhaps better phrase, the Paul's theology, new creation. There, of course, the emphasis is on the entire creation in that particular verse. But he also has human beings and the church at the center of his vision, so they belong together. Now, these and other texts have as their background many Old Testament writings, but especially the prophecies of Isaiah, which speak openly in, uh, at the, uh, towards the end of Isaiah, 65 and 66, um, of a new heavens and a new earth, the two mm -hmm. verses that actually use that. People often think that was the invention of uh, Revelation 21, but it's there in Isaiah. They, for, for the Jews of Jesus' time, and certainly in Isaiah's time, God was committed to all that he had made. Uh, everything that he brought into being. He's the creator of all and will one day, in ways we can hardly imagine, uh, renew all things. So, uh, and also new creation, it must be said, is there behind John's gospel as well. John's gospel begins in the beginning, which is an echo of Genesis 1, of the creation narrative at the beginning of the Bible. And it ends uh, with, in John 21, uh, with effectively a picture of a new world being made and Jesus at the heart of it. Couldn't say much more about that, but basically it's, it's uh, new creation is a kind of background theme of the, of the New Testament that mm -hmm. comes forward, that bursts out uh, every now and then in verses like 2 Corinthians 5 and elsewhere. So, so we, we need to hold these together somehow. That's the point. I think one's got to say a lot of Christian spirituality has been very focused on on human beings almost at the expense of the wider picture. And then sometimes people have gone on about the wider picture and forgotten that human beings also have a special role and uh, a very particular role within the created order. Yeah. So what does this have to do then with creative work? Uh, the This cosmological re reworking of the new heavens and new earth and, and, the, and even the, the personal, the... the, the Recreation of, of the person. It seems yeah. those both in both of those cases we're talking about God doing something. What does what does Indeed. this have to do with the, the work we do? Well, I think the um, you could, we could go on about this for many hours. I think, but just to pick out a couple of things, it means that making art or being creative is first of all working with 
the physical things that we've been given in God's world. Mm-hmm. There's, we've been in, in the modern age, we're very often captive to what is, you could broadly call a romantic view of the artist as a self-expressive individual, where the important thing, the important thing that the artist is working with is his or her own emotions or inner thoughts or inner ideas. Um, it's not that there's no truth in that, but if you put it as it were, all the eggs in that basket, you're going to get a very stunted and sub-Christian view of what creativity is about. We're physical, embodied beings in a physical, material world that God has pronounced good, and we are to take the materials of this world, world like stone or pigment or wood or sound, and enable them to praise God, to bring about new forms of order that glorify God. And that's a very earthly, very, um, very, yeah, indeed, down-to-earth picture of the creative of creative person. An illustration I've often used here was a dear friend of mine, his daughter, very tragically died, and but he mentioned a story of when she was on the beach, when she was, I don't know, four or five or something like that, and she would take uh, bits of driftwood off the beach and she would go home and she would carve and polish them down into something utterly beautiful. Hmm. Uh, my hope was out of this terrible tragedy, in his case, God would bring about something that would shine, that would be beautiful in some way that we couldn't possibly see then. Uh, that's, that seems to me a remarkable, powerful parable of what's, what ought to be going on, really in all creativity up to a point. You're working with physical things, and of course the with there means with the grain of physical things, mm, as yeah. well as just using material things. Uh, you're attentive to the, to the grain of the wood, or to the way that sounds work, or to the way that colors interact with each other. So that's that's one of the things. Another wonderful thing it means is that we're living in a world that's on its way to a promised future, because new creation is something that is promised. First of all, first of all, a new world is promised, and so whenever you're making anything or creating anything as a Christian, you're doing that in the stream of that promise. You're aware that what we see now, including evil and sin. Uh, will not have the last word. It's not the end now. Mm-hmm. A, a greater end is in view. And that means, I think, Christian artists, whatever they might do in any particular piece of art or music or whatever, they ought to be harbingers of hope in some way, at some point. Uh, otherwise, we've rather missed the point. And all that is wrapped up in this idea of new creation. Mm. Yeah. Um, my friend Pete Peterson talks about the, the idea that... Um, uh, we don't have a limited amount of time to make things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that we, uh, it's good. It's, good. it's true enough that in this life, you can only write so many books or, or so many symph- symphonies or, or dance so many dances or do so many podcasts. Yes. <laughs> the, the making of, co- of the making of podcasts. There is no, there is no end. Absolutely. <laughs> Endless expansion of podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> We're already seeing that. aren't we? Uh, indeed we are. We are definitely. <laughs> No, but you're right. It's, it's, it's this wonderful thing of, of coming to terms with finitude um, and not seeing that as a, de- as a desperate, oh, I must cram in as much as possible before the end, but see it, hey, this is a gift. And, of course, the finitude ultimately means we're not God, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to try to be infinite. It's not what we're about. 
Um, so it makes you grateful for the finite, limited things of this life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your uh, introduction, you quote uh, Richard Wilbur. That's sort of mm. my, my love language. Um, and I, I love what, what Wilbur says, and then I love what you do uh, with it. Let me pull this up here. Um, I don't know which poem this is. Um, lying. The poem is called Lying, I guess. It's called Lying. I'm not sure. I need to look at the whole context of that. Yes, I wonder what kind of lying it is. Yeah. It may be lying down rather than <laughs> lying as in telling yeah. untruths. But anyhow. Yeah, you, as you say, the poet muses on the fact that we never really invent anything. Hmm. But are, and, and now to quote him, merely bearing witness to what each morning brings to light. It's a lovely and phrase, then, isn't, it? Yeah. isn't that great? And then you, you go on to quote him, all these things are there before us before we look or fail to look there to be seen or not by us. Yeah. And, uh, and then you spend several pages sort of teasing out that idea of these things that are there before us. Indeed. Um, now, of course that applies to creation as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about creativity and artistic creation, of course we've got to remember that God is the first creator that there's always something before us in that in that very basic sense. Interesting enough, the very term creator or creative as applied to the artist is relatively recent. It comes in with Renaissance. There might be the odd thought about it before him, but not that I've ever found, um, uh, which, is, which is actually should make us stop and think. The point being that, no, God creates. We only follow on, or to use Tolkien's phrase, we sub-create. We're sub-creators. We don't create out of nothing. We're always creating out of something given. Um, But then it applies also supremely to new creation, and I spell out uh, some of the different uh, senses of that. I kind of play with the word there before us. And so I have have three senses there that the new creation is there before us. It's behind us. It's already happened. It right. will happen in the future, and it's there facing us now. So I, I tried to expand a little bit about those and 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 apply those ideas to to the making of art and to the reception of art. Yeah. So insofar as it's behind us, that's a reminder that we're not so much makers as remakers. Lovely. Exactly. Um, I love a phrase I have. It's not very poetic, but at least it's an idea that I I've enjoyed. Um, exploring it's the alreadiness of christianity yeah. and it's it's so basic but but it's something we just need to remember um that there has been well yeah it's so basic isn't it but there's something that has already been accomplished before we th- were born before we thought about it before we invented it before we believed it yeah uh, it's there it's happened and that's of course what's happened in christ so the New Testament uh, is, is, you could say, vibrant with the conviction that in Christ something has happened, an exp- a kind of, ex- um, what's the word, a- explosion of activity uh, has already happened. And, um, and we follow after and enjoy it. Yeah. And it's, of course, a promise of what is to come. So the already-ness of the new creation, and that finds its climax in the raising of Jesus from the dead, the recreation of a lacerated, decaying, dead body to enjoy this unimaginably 
new mode of life, what Paul calls uh, the re- the resurrection body, or what he calls the spiritual body, by which, of course, he means not the non-material body, the body of the future won't be non-material, it'll be totally a physical body animated by the Holy Spirit. That's what mm-hmm. spiritual means, of course. So I think that makes a difference to every every part of artistic engagement. And in the article, I, I try to spell that out with with respect to a few very often used terms, like beauty, for instance. It seems to me we must indeed uh, take beauty very seriously. And a lot of Christian writing on the arts these days does just that. It's very concerned to bring beauty back into the discussion. And actually in the in the so-called secular world or secular art sphere as well, beauty is being talked about a lot, understandably. But of course, the wonderful thing is the Christian has a very distinctive way of understanding beauty. Uh, what could be more beautiful than the raising of the crucified Jesus from the dead. That's that's ultimate, that's beauty. And of course, it, it comes with you know the nail marks in, in Jesus' hands. That is, it comes with the promise that uh, evil has been, de- sorry, the conviction evil has been dealt with and will one day mm-hmm. be dealt with. Another one is the word prophetic. Uh, yeah, I, I'm in a lot of a lot of uh, situations. What we need today is prophetic art. It's very important that art, artists are prophetic in today's, um, gosh, in a world with Ukraine, with pandemic, with racism. I mean, you name it, it's there. And we need prophetic art. But I think we need to be slightly careful because that can just de- kind of devolve into just the exposing of evil and being angry about it. Mm-hmm. Now. I'm not suggesting for a moment that evil shouldn't be exposed, uh, nor that we shouldn't be angry. Of course we should. But again, the notion of new creation in the Bible in the Bible brings a distinctive perspective on that. And I think, well, if we look at the Old Testament prophets, uh, judgment there, if we're going to be prophetic, I mean, they, they always talk about you know God's judgment. Of course they do. But judgment in the, in the Old Testament and the New of course, is driven by love. That is that God has committed himself to Israel. Therefore, we need to expose, the, God needs to expose the evil in the midst of the Jewish people sometimes, as and when they're behaving unjustly. And judgment also carries the wonderful sense, doesn't it, Jonathan, of, 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 of uh, setting things right. But the last judgment as the as old Israel looked ahead to the to the day of the Lord, it would be the day when the good would be vindicated, and evil would at last be set aside. Now, for the Jew of that time, it's already happened in the Exodus. Right. That's the that's the great um, a judgment event, and and it will they believe happen in the future. For Christians, it's already happened in Christ, mm-hmm. and it will one day happen. On, um, uh, on the last judgment. So when we speak about the prophetic, let's have a really wide, rich view um, that is positively driven, that involves the exposing of evil, yes, but also its ultimate, it's the ultimate remaking of the world, setting things right. Yeah. We often think of judgment, of course, judgment has a very negative edge to it, of course it does, but in the New Testament, over and over again, you know, judgment for the oppressed, for the tiny little Christian communities, is in Revelation. Um, it's just fantastically good news. 
I remember once um, uh, hearing Desmond Tutu speak about in in the very, very dark days of apartheid, he visited a home that had been burnt down and um, it had been burnt down. It turned out deliberately by the police in order they would have someone to blame for something. I mean, it was just deeply corrupt. Mm -hmm. And this family, they'd lost all their possessions. And I think even a member of the family uh, uh, died in the process. And he said he knelt with the father uh, in the rubble of their house. And the father, and he didn't know what to say, but the father prayed, well, Lord, at least you know. Ah. Well, at least you know what's really going on here. Yeah. And one wow. day that will become clear. Yeah. You see, so it's really, really good news. Uh, judgment ultimately for if you're standing in 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 that kind of situation. Yeah. Now, it seems to me, therefore, when we're doing art that is prophetic, it needs to be set in this wider sense that is ultimately positive. And because God loves us, he will expose the worst and want to set it right. Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned the artwork of Steve Prince, Prince an African-American uh, New Orleans-based artist who does these extraordinary pictures of um, yeah. Well, it's really of hope in the midst of, uh, well, his greatest series, I think, isn't concerning Hurricane Katrina. And yes, there's devastation, but it's always in the midst of a, of a wider hope based on the glorious truth that God has already been to the very worst and made the very best out of the very worst. I love the language of rectification, you know, judgment, mm, yeah. rectification. It's, it's, you know, justification Absolutely. and rectification, you know, even if you think about, you know, the, the, the straightening, the, the resuming. Make uh, straight the bus. No, absolutely. That's, uh, that's, that's a great model. And I think justification, of course, ultimately uh, means vindication. At least it has this charge of Israel will be vindicated. The good will be vindicated. What is really good, true, beautiful, or whatever, will at last be seen for what it really is. Mm, yeah, it's yeah. primarily, primarily good news. Yeah. As you say, uh, I love what you say in, in this, this essay, grounding the prophetic in God's prior gracious acts mm. is far more severe and searching than our own self-made attempts at unmasking and condemning wrong. I know. We tend to think, if you really want to be serious about evil, forget all that theology, just look at how awful it is. But that's, that, you know, the cross shows us great perils. It's much worse than you would ever think <laughs> or that you yeah. can ever show. Yeah. And it shows you that God's goodness and forgiveness is even greater than that. Yeah. So you're given, you're given a double, you know, uh, a double bit of good news there, and, or at least bad news. It's worse, but it's actually uh, God's forgiveness has, has gone that deep. And that's so much more both severe and wonderful than the mere secular artist, you know, exposure of, of the worst, which, of course, vast amounts of art, particularly in the 20th century and the 21st, has done. It's done no more than, say, things are very bleak. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Christians are not sentimental. We don't say, well, really, they're not. And it's all going to be hunky-dory in the end. We say, really, they're bleak, and they're bleaker than you think. <laughs> but God has done something about it. Yeah. Okay, so that is there before us. The new creation is there before us in the sense that it was it's already started, so it's yep. before we got here. 
That's every day we wake up. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Every day we wake up in a world we didn't make. That's Uh, right. Lovely. Yeah. um, It's there ahead of us. I mean, there before us means it's there ahead of us. I don't know. uh, Yes. I mean, in the sense that that what's behind us is a promise for what will be. So there's this great arc or arch over us. Mm-hmm. That what's happened in the raising of Jesus from the dead is this is a promise, of course, for the final renewal of things. So that the artist seems to be, I'm not saying every art needs to be about the future or the final new creation or whatever, but at some stage in an artist's output, I think, and at the very least, always there in the back of the mind of the artist, yeah, or uh, wow. like a, it's almost like a flavor or an aroma. Uh, yeah, needs to be something of this hope. Now, sometimes it can be done very directly. And I mentioned the book, an extraordinary painting by a Balinese artist when he's painting Bali. Uh, but it's it's an evocation of Revelation twenty two, where a perpetual stream is flowing from God's throne, nourishing the tree of life. And what he's doing is he's taking Bali and he's saying. It's pretty beautiful, but the new t- the new creation is going to be even better than this. So we get actually a sort of explicit picture of the new creation. That's that's one example. It can be done in so many other ways um, as well. Um, I often think, I mean, this is, and I don't think it's true. You can find this in in very fine um, uh, art or music, which is not written necessarily or created by Christians. There's a wonderful musical called Stomp, which um, I expect a number of your listeners will have seen, where basically it's it's a kind of dance troupe that takes brushes and cans and you know, trash cans, um, nails, uh, sinks, and other very often discarded, unpromising objects. And it creates, it's very hard to describe because there's no music yeah. And there's not a word is spoken. Yeah. It's a kind of dance, basically. They're making so, so that you see a brush make the most extraordinary sounds. And they synchronize this in extraordinary ways. So when you get home, when you get home and you see a brush in the corner of the room, <laughs> you think, hmm. Yeah. That, that's what it could become. I just heard what it could become. Yeah. You see, it's got a kind of eschatological promise, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, they're not doing it for Christian reasons. I'm not saying that, but it's an extraordinary parable, nonetheless. And I've, I've often, when I mention that, I, I challenge churches or, or pastors to say, have you got something in your church which does that? Mm. It takes the the common, the discarded, the banal, the unpromising, the thing that you would normally never notice, things that you would normally never notice, and make something extraordinary out of them. Like it's back to the, the child on the beach with the driftwood yeah. again, the, the stuff you would trip over, right? Trip over, and then of course, if you apply that to human beings, it comes very powerful. All of a sudden, yeah. the forgotten person, the homeless person, you trip over. Uh, wait a minute, see them in, in the light of what God wants to make of them, uh, yeah. even up to resurrection body. My goodness, life looks very different all of wow. a sudden. So, now, and artists can do that, I think. Hmm. It, or at least ought to be able to do it. One of the great gifts of art, after all, is to help us imagine things which we do not see now, but will be or could be. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's what a great deal of art is about. It's saying, you see things like this, try looking at it like this. Mm. 
you may have already you may have just answered this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, in the in the the idea of uh, the new creation being before us, and in the third sense, it is it's right here in front of us. It, it's That's right. Yeah, present with us because of the holy the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Uh, Whatever else the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit is bringing the future into the present. That's that's New Testament mm-hmm. uh, 101, basic theology. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have a foretaste now of what yeah. will be. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And so um, in that context, in, in your discussion of that idea, you, you write a sentence that I, I want to hear more about. You say, the sure. arts are far more than a mere storehouse of eschatological metaphors. Right? The, yes. the, the brush... That we, I think differently about. That's a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, got you absolutely. But, but then you say they also serve to embody and mediate that future, albeit in traditional and imperfect ways. What do you mean by that? It not, I, I, it's easy for me to see how art provides us with metaphors for thinking about. Uh, no, that's thank you. Earth. Um, yeah, I can see why you're such a famous podcast host. Um, it's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is that yes. Uh, say the stomp thing, that can give us a wonderful idea and a vision. But I think I want to say more about the arts. Arts can actually embody physically, uh, give you a direct experience, you might even say, um, of that future. And I give some examples. I think singing is one of the most interesting. Uh, Singing together. Mm -hmm. Yes, singing together can be a great illustration of the body of Christ, but it does more than that, I think, when it's done well. It actually enacts, embodies, plays out for us, gives us embodied experience of uh, a kind of unity and diversity that's really not possible in any other way. Now, interestingly, there's a lot of work in anthropology and psychology which has shown how basic communal singing is to the human race and how Singing will give you an experience of a mutual empathy, support, synchronization, all sorts of things, which are very basic to our corporate, the way that God has made us as relational and um, corporate beings. And it's a particularly interesting, there's a, there's a friend of mine who has written a, a book about a history of singing in the West, and he's, he's pointed out that there are certain early church texts which speak of singing as a direct embodiment of the age to come, that the singing is a, indeed a foretaste of the resurrection body. Just a foretaste, provisional, partial, liable to sin, but nonetheless a real foretaste. Um, when it comes to the Reformation, we find a number of Reformation theologians using the same kind of idea. We think of uh, the role of hymns in Lutheran, uh, in, in the early Lutheran church, as the as Luther's church grew and grew and became, so we're more missionary, singing became an absolutely key part of that. Not just because of the words which were sung, which are fantastic, but the very experience of singing together. Anyone who's sung in a choir, uh, of, of even, a, even a really bad choir, uh, will, will know something of that. Those moments when you really get it together and you realize something is much greater than the sum of the parts here. That also has to do, mind you, with, I think, the way we hear sounds as well, that you have when you sing together, say, in harmony, you have an experience, a kind of a sonic experience that you can't get with your eyes 
or indeed any other way, uh, because of the way that sounds overlap and create a kind of unity and diversity. I think another experience, or another very basic bodily practice, it's, it's universal in all cultures, is dance, or ritualized bodily movement, however you want to describe dance, rhythmic bodily movement. Um, and I think, you know, when Paul talks about the resurrection of the body in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about, effectively he's talking about in the new creation, in the, in the final new creation, the body will be fully alive. It, it, that's the implication. It won't just survive. It'll be released from the things which are holding it back now. And I'm wondering whether, I've often wondered, I've not developed this, whether dance at his best, at its best, is something like that. My daughter is a dancer, a professional standard, and she so often said, you know, and she's a very profound Christian, and she so often said, that's when I feel most fully alive. When when the, the body is doing something that I feel it was created to do, but which is much more than just walking. Um, or the or the other kind of activities that she's engaged with. So I'm fascinated in that. Incidentally, in the whole faith and arts thing, um, there's virtually nothing of substance that I've found in the last, say, 20, 30 years written on dance. And yet dance is universal in all cultures. Uh, it's absolutely basic human practice. And, of course, there are dangers with dance, and the church has had a, a kind of mixed history with dance. <laughs> yeah. Of course it has. But... But it's not only, it's a great metaphor, I think, at its best for the for the resurrection body, but there's, I think, more than a metaphor, I think, when it's done well, and it's certainly when it's done by believing Christians, they're, they're experiencing something, something of the future, and there are a lot of, lot of testimonies to that experience. Can you say anything about storytelling with regard to this idea of moving beyond metaphor into embodiment and mediation? Oh, I think so, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, I mean, what's happening in a story? You might even say more in in a drama, in an acted drama, when a story is not just told with words, but is physically acted out in bodies. Oh, I think that's extraordinary because what's happening there? You're turning into bodily, concrete form something that's absolutely basic to Christianity. Uh, narrative, and I think actually drama is basic to the Christian story. Um, what God has done in Christ has set in motion uh, something that's in time, that's enacted in and through time. And the truth of the Christian faith uh, is known as we share in the story that God has set in motion, which is the story from creation to consummation, uh, ultimately. So Christianity doesn't give us just ideas, static ideas. It gives us, at its best, it gives us a sense that we are in the midst of a grand story or drama that God is working out. That von Balthasar calls the theodrama and the, the you know God's drama, and that's been worked out by by a lot of people and quite rightly too. So therefore, storytelling becomes not just a way of pointing to ideas, but of drawing people into yeah. a drama. Ultimately, now they might they might still be sitting still listening to it, but they're still drawn in in the way that if you go to a play in a theatre, you're drawn into the drama even if you're actually sitting sitting still, and that of course is 
is what God is constantly doing with us. He's pulling us into something that he set in motion. Um, so, so storytelling, I'm a hopeless storyteller. When, when I preach, I have to struggle to keep in narrative mode because I want to turn everything, being a theologian or systematic theologian, I've always wanted to turn things into frozen doctrines. Uh, but doctrines are only portable stories. They're just stories in transportable form. Uh, but they're not substitutes for the story. They're not substitute for the great story of the Bible and the stories within it. You know what it's like when I I, I tease my uh, my um, my students about this sometimes that that we train them when we're training them to preach. We often train them to turn everything into a set of ideas. Yeah. When when if you're if you're preaching on a great story in the Bible, somehow you must be careful. Take them into the story. Don't just reduce it to a set of propositions or ideas in order to make it clearer it'll never be more clear than if you can in some sense recreate the story or take them into the story no that's good all right we're we're going to run out of time if, if sure if we got to move on if you don't mind of course one thing i really want to make sure we we hit before we uh, uh move on and that is we're talking about novelty and and yeah. The artist's desire for novelty and originality, uh, you, you put the idea of novelty and originality in the context of new creation. I'm doing a new thing. Yep. We want to do new things. Um, and you suggest that the new creation gives yep. us some ways of thinking about what it means for us to do new things. Uh, I think that the theme of newness is one of them or novelty is one of the most important things we we need to think through and i distinguish a number of things there the new the new creation in the bible doesn't emerge smoothly out of the old order so we need to get away from the idea of of what's sometimes called progress with a capital p that is that the world is smoothly and gradually going to get better into the new creation that is not the way that the new testament um uh, 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 perceives it. Also, we need to reckon that the new creation is radically distant with the old order of sin and death. Mm-hmm. So, as far as, the, say, the arts are concerned, we need to be making clear that there is a real battle between the old and the new. That's not a battle between God and the material world. That's not the point. Uh, the point is between uh, between good and evil, ultimately. So what what Paul calls the old order or refers to the old order of sin and death uh, is radically dissonant with, dissonant with the new creation. But we also want to say, despite all that, that the new creation is um, unpredictable, even if yeah. uh, even if consistent. And if we can keep those two together, you're doing really well. Jazz players know how to do this. Jazz players know how to be unpredictable and yet not sound arbitrary and ridiculous. At least this is the best one. You take the resurrection. Um, unpredictable? Yes, undoubtedly. No one predicted it was going to happen at that time in that way, like that. So it has, in the New Testament, presents something that no one, no one could easily foresee and simply calculate right. from what went before. Uh, but at the same time, once it had happened, we were going to say, hey, this is very consistent yeah. with what God has been promising all along and the kind of God he is. And yeah. it's that dynamic of 
unpredictable yet consistent that we need somehow altogether. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. The, the Spirit doesn't do the ridiculous thing, the arbitrary thing. Um, no, the Holy Spirit does the consistent thing, but in all sorts of unpredictable and exciting and initially slightly odd ways. Yeah. Um, hey, all our favorite stories have these endings that, that we couldn't see coming. And then when you look back, say, well, of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Our writers that well, unpredictable but believable is the sweet spot. That's lovely. So what we're trying to get away from here is determinism, the idea yeah. that if we knew enough at point X, it would all just be predictable from then on. We don't live in that kind of world. Thank the Lord we don't live in that kind of world because that's a machine and we don't live in the midst of a machine. Thank goodness. Otherwise, we really would be um, up the spout. And then, of course, the other big, well, one of the other big senses of renewing, of, of, of new creation is that God renews the broken. Uh, and the great artistic, one of the great artistic illustrations or, en or enactments <laughs> of this is that fantastic sculpture I speak about where, um, which is made out of the uh, weapons from the Civil War in Mozambique. It's called the Tree of Life, and it's evoking the Tree of Life of Revelation, but the entire tree is made up of weapons. So it's this extraordinary symbol of recreation, of taking something associated with death and horror at its worst uh, and remaking it into the Tree of Life. It's an extraordinary thing. I think that's a kind of symbol for me of what a great deal of Christian art ought to be doing. Who would have thought that, you know, the AK-47s would be turned into the tree of life? And then there's one other thing that I've not, that I do mention towards the end there, and it's this wonderful, ver wonderful uh, idea in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is talking about the new, uh, the, the resurrection body, the spiritual body, as being incorrupt. He talks yeah. about the corrupt body that we have now, because the, the natural body, that is the body that is, a slave to sin and death, it's running down, it's decaying. Um, you're, you're obviously not getting any older, Jonathan, but I am actually aging. And so we're aware of ourselves running down and everything running down. But he then talks about an incorruptible body. And it's easy to translate that or think that simply as the body survives. Mm. There's a lot of evidence, Tony Thistleson is very good on this, that this actually has much more the sense of running up mm. rather than running down. Yeah. Uh, uh, a di he calls it, I think, something like a dynamic process of flourishing, purpose, and abundance. It's the idea that in some extraordinary way, which splits our minds open, there's going to be movement, expansion. Um, it's like music that's going to get more and more full, more and more wonderful. Uh, now, that splits our mind open, but we have a hint of it, more than a hint of it, in the resurrection of Jesus um, himself. Yeah. And I think... And that's a wonderful sense of newness. In other words, a kind of newness that never grows old. A kind of newness where you <laughs> wow. can have novelty without loss, without losing things. And that, that's yeah. a wonderful thought, I think. It, oh, isn't it? Yes. And I think there is a uh, one overlap between new creation and just the, the work that artists do. An important one is just yeah. it's the opposite of entropy. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's yeah. exactly what I'm saying. That, that, that things left to their own devices run down and, and rust, and the artist reorders things. And reorders. Of course, even the artist's work ultimately runs down. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. The music stops. The bronze yeah. sculptor, I don't know what bronze does, but eventually it's going to disintegrate. <laughs> no, it's something. Yeah. So, but, but you're absolutely right, Jonathan, that there's actually a hint, a gesture towards. Right. Uh, in this remaking that we do. 
uh, a gesture towards, hey, suppose that's going to go on eternally, mm-hmm. the remaking, such that things will never grow. It's about um, they shall run and never grow weary. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's hinted at. See, these verses now you begin to re-notice all over the Bible that actually hint about this. Don't ask me to work that out in, in all its metaphysics, but I think uh, there's something we need to take very seriously there. Otherwise, we're left with an incredibly boring vision of the afterlife as just a kind of, you know, the static one note or just the same tune played over and over again on a harp or something. That's, yeah. that's, eternity is much more interesting than that. Yeah. Here's hoping. Absolutely. <laughs> Here's believing. Yes. Here's believing, yes. Well, can I ask you one more question? It's the question I tend to ask at the end of these conversations. That is, who are the writers who make you want to write? Um, there are a lot of them, actually. A lot of them are that. I think the writings of Leslie Newbigin mm. have always inspired me uh, from the day I first picked up a book of his. The writings of the Torrances, these are Presbyterian theologians, and I, I came to faith through James Torrance, um, so I return to them. I don't necessarily agree with everything, but they, but they inspire me. Um, we've just been speaking about things running down. Tom Torrance wrote a book called Space, Time, and Resurrection in the 1970s. Uh, when I first read it, I didn't understand a lot of it, but it was absolutely captivating in this glorious cosmic vision that the, that the resurrection provokes. Um, I remember Tom Wright telling me that when he first read that, he was in tears, tears by the end of it. Mm. And so that family, I think when it comes to, um, oh, there's so many. Eugene Peterson, you mentioned earlier, Malcolm Geit figures very highly. Uh, you've had him on this podcast, I think, haven't you? That's right, yes. That's right, yeah. Uh, anything that Malcolm writes, whether poetry or prose, is worth reading. Yeah. I think he's, he's absolutely extraordinary yeah. um, exactly. a writer and first-rate theologian as well. What he managed to do is he got this kind of intellectual uh, rigor and scholarship and knowledge mm-hmm. and whatever, but, it's, of course, it's so heartfelt and so pastorally applicable yeah. and also yeah. great poetry when he's writing poetry. I mean, that's very, very fine poetry. Yeah. So I could think of many, many others, but I, I think uh, I'll settle for those at the moment. Well, great. Well, Professor Jeremy Begbie, thank you so much for being here. This has just been a a delight. Lovely to, to, to do this. Thank you so much for your time. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.